Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm JT White. Once again, no Malcolm this time around, but it is all good because we have stepping up to the plate, pinch hitting, if you will, into the third mic position. He was already going to be the guest on this episode, but this week he's Malcolm. Uh, it's Spencer Ryder. What's up, dude? Hello. Hello. Good to finally be on. We've been talking about potentially doing this since like 2020, so good we finally got we got here. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the combined extended clip those good old-fashioned values fan bases have been doing the will-they-won't-they Sam and Diane (laughs) flirtation for about eight seasons now, so I think it's finally time to give it a whirl. Uh, So we're going to be talking about Rosemary's Baby as well as Black Christmas, uh, which is really good because this season we haven't really talked much about horror, uh, a, a genre that we usually like to give its due, give its flowers, if you will. Uh, so these are two very ahead of their time, innovative uh, types of horror movies. They're often more lauded for their innovation rather than actually just as movies. But that would be wrong because they're also just fucking awesome as movies. Uh, Spencer, wh- why this pairing? Uh, why did you want to bring these two films? Um I've been looking for an excuse to like ramble about Black Christmas for a while, and I, I kind of already did it on those good old-fashioned values a little bit, but I promise I'm going to be more articulate here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really just that you guys have talked about every fucking movie and choosing a <laughs> double feature from two separate decades, like from the decade parameters that you had was like driving yeah. me insane. So I was just like, <laughs> fuck it. Two, like, two of the most famous horror movies of all time. Let's go, like, why not? I don't care everyone else is bringing fucking Naruse movies from the 1950s. I'm, I'm bringing <laughs> Roman Polanski to the table. Well, you had to, you know. It's uh, Some people are going to go dive real deep. I think Ethan even asked me, like, this isn't too much of, like, a, you know too deep of a double feature, right? Like, this, it, like people aren't going to not listen to this. And it's like, look... The people who listen to this podcast, they're in the bag for fucking whatever, but obviously putting Rosemary's Baby in the title of the podcast is going to get you, you know, a hell of a lot more clicks than John Roland films, so I'm all for it. Uh, and as we said, Rosemary's Baby already, just just an incredible film. Uh, JT, you had you seen both of these before? Uh, yeah, I think Rosemary's Baby I've definitely seen more. I feel like this is, like, my fourth or, like, fifth time I watched mm-hmm. it. Yeah, no. Great. Like, amazing movie. Yeah, no, uh, last time I watched it, I have a couple weird familial things with this. Last time I rewatched it, my dad came to, like, visit my apartment for the first time since I had moved out. And it was just, like, very strange to just, like, he was just, he kind of just wanted to chill in my room, I think. And like I was showing him around, he's like, "Which what, what you got on in here?" And I was like, "Oh, I was just rewatching Rosemary's Baby," and he just like kind of plopped himself on the seat where I was watching it. And I was like, "All right, Dad, this isn't how this works." And the other thing is, the first time I ever watched Rosemary's Baby, 
the night of the screening, um, earlier that day, I had been told that my sister was pregnant with her first child. Uh, and like, <laughs> it was just so, That's great. like I had, I had never seen any movie like this before, let alone, you know, with these exact themes and fears and everything. And, uh, it really, uh, took it to another level. I think that first viewing has always stuck with me. Uh, but it's a film that gets better every time I watch it. Both, uh, I want to say I watched both of these, I think on the same day in high school, now that I think about it, I was on a very long train ride. I was touring colleges at the time. Fucking, uh, I was... <laughs> I was touring fucking Sarah Lawrence College, which, you know, that would have been a great fit. That would have been a fantastic, (laughs) would have been a great time. Um, See, the thing about Sarah Lawrence, like, you'll never have those bros complaining about, like, the ratio at the party. Like, it's like, if you have a guy complaining about that, you really fucked up at Sarah Lawrence. (laughs) Yeah, no. Uh, But um, I remember I just, like, downloaded a bunch of... What is it? Uh, I was downloading a bunch of horror movies, and uh, two of them that were on my list, Black Christmas and Rosemary's Baby, I watched them both, and I really liked them both, and they made a huge impact on me at the time. And there've been, they've been movies that I've revisited a lot. Black Christmas, I rewatch every single Christmas. I have mm-hmm. for like the past seven years, so I did not even need to revisit that one for this podcast. I basically have it memorized at this point. Yeah. Um, but Rosemary's Baby, this is my third time watching. Uh, my wife is a huge John Cassavetes fan and insisted she watch it with me. And, uh, I just like, I am the Michael Jordan at picking the worst fucking movies to watch with my wife. Like we watched, (laughs) we watched Elle, the fucking Paul Verhoeven movie together recently. Um, it was actually a nice like nudge, like, Hey, don't you want to get into video game design (laughs) and stuff like that? (laughs) Hey, we got like a really cool wall here. Do you want to look at that? (laughs) Yeah. We, it was her idea to watch fucking martyrs though. So like I washed my hands of that incident, but yeah. We, I, I wanted to add, um, I was, my friend, uh, uh, those good old fashioned values host Ty was fucking mortified when I told her it was like the second or third time I was like date with my wife and we watched Dogville. <laughs> it was just, oh like, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> no, I mean, I, any, any, uh, self-respecting cinephile, uh, loses all sense of self-respectability in those situations and just goes full blown, you know, Travis Bickle taking the girl to the porno. Uh, Like my, yeah, my first two dates, uh, movie dates with my girlfriend were, you know, Firewalk with me and Tar. And I mean, you know, Tar, sure, it's unromantic, but Firewalk with me, that's like literally just a horror movie about a woman being raped by her father basically to death. Like, yeah, great second date, you know, (laughs) still going strong. (laughs) Good, uh, good thematic. I mean, same here. Uh, Dogville's now one of my wife's favorite movies. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, Taking the odd pick is the really test the relationship in a better way. But it, it's a metaphorical drawing a line in the sand. You know, it's like, yeah. look, if we're going to date, we're going to watch movies that you're not going to want to eat or have sex after for like a day or two. So <laughs> it's all good. Like, it's just movies, but they might be a little. Bleh. But Fire Walk With Me, I'm glad you brought up since that is a movie that has a lot of uh, thematic overlap with these two. Uh, yeah, these definitely. These are two movies about the horrors of rape and not being able to trust any of the men around you and being just, you know, the just pure sitting in abject terror of, and 
God, I hate to use this term, but of like patriarchal forces. Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's it's easy to, you know, say it in a way that makes it sound like feminist film theory 101 or whatever. But it's like Rosemary's Baby. That's it's one of the movies you show for that for a reason, you know. Uh, and I think the great jumping off point here would be John Cassavetes. Yes. Uh, John Cassavetes' performance in this is horrifying. You know, it's the the demarcation between the eras of horror movies, I like to think at least, are when they were monster and scary castle movies. And then obviously the, you know, the psycho killer movies led to slashers and all the other much more dark and demonic films that came uh, after that. And Rosemary's Baby is kind of in between those, I would say, because it is like, you know, it's a it's a voodoo movie, if you will. It's a demonic energy movie. Uh, it's a psychological thriller, but also just like as a monster movie, like Cassavetes as a symbolic monster figure is incredible. You know, like obviously you have this uh witchcraft voodoo element where Cassavetes is you know allowing the devil to rape his wife but you know in a sense obviously it's easy to just fill Cassavetes into that role as the brooding husband who's you know doing whatever he can to his wife and against her wills uh in order to achieve personal gain and it's just it's horrifying and, and like the even like in the reality of like him lying to her in the film where it's just like where he's just trying to keep up the appearance of just being a bad husband mm -hmm. literally just to cover the baby night the conception of uh like the devil child within her he's like well you were asleep and i raped you like yeah. uh <laughs> no big deal. Like... he literally says like i didn't want to miss baby night just yeah. very <laughs> very calmly just says that it's <laughs> Dreams I had. Don't yell. I already filed them down. <laughs> I didn't want to miss baby night. You and a couple of my I nails were out? ragged and and it was kind of fun in a necrophile sort of way. I dreamed someone was raping me. I don't know, someone inhuman. Thanks a lot. Oh, God. Cassavetes, that is one of my favorite performances ever. Cassavetes is, like, my favorite actor, period, probably. Mm -hmm. He just has this way, like, of... He's always playing himself, but he finds, like, endless little variations on himself to play that he can inhabit any role perfectly, basically. And uh, he just slips into this role so perfectly. Like, just the way he never raises his voice or never even seems any more than, like, mildly irritated about how you know, emotional and irrational he thinks his wife is being. And just this, like, the slimy ways he just casually kind of gaslights her and manipulates her. Like, the scene where they have the chocolate mousse, and um, Mia Farrow just is like, I don't really want to eat it. And then he just, like, really carefully manipulates the conversation to get her to eat it. It's like, ah, fine, you're, you're always too picky or whatever. It's just <laughs> nauseous. It's a fucking... It, 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 he does the dentist system to her. <laughs> and it's funny to consider like on rewatch when they turned him you know when they approached him with this offer because they're the, after the first time they go to the cast of its house and for anyone who doesn't know it's fucking rosemary's baby but if you're listening to this and don't know the plot of rosemary's baby uh, mia farrow and john cassavetes move into a spooky apartment in new york city and uh, their upstairs neighbors the cast of its 
uh, are involved in uh, demonic, uh, you know, magic with a K, if you will. Uh, and they basically invoke the devil to impregnate Mia Farrow uh, in exchange for success for John Cassavetes as an actor. Uh, and so there's a lot of overlap with real life there uh, also. Uh, you have John Cassavetes, obviously, as a filmmaker who would do these for hire roles on TV and in junkie movies in order to fund his independent filmmaking, uh, reflected through his character who is doing commercials to pay the bills while he does theatrical work. And you really get the sense he identified with this character because he probably saw having to work with Roman Polanski as a deal with the devil. Because even <laughs> before the even before the Samantha Geimer stuff, Roman Polanski fuck or uh, those two fucking hated each other. Like yeah. John Cassavetti is obviously he's one of the most alcoholic guys to ever do it. But you know, he's also just got this like very male BPD ideas of romance and love. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got Roman Polanski, who just always was, you know, he's always been one of the most efficient pedophiles in uh, cinema <laughs> history. Just like people who I, I don't know how he has defenders, because like even before like the incident, he was running like sex trafficking rings and shit. And yeah. just uh, like all of his friends do. It's like, yeah, he sleeps with teenagers, but it's the 1970s. So like you're kind of allowed to do that for the next couple of years. Um, yeah, it is kind of interesting how much play the Samantha Geimer apology gets when it's like, that's such a unique case and such a strange case, and he also has like 50 other victims. It's like, yeah. it, okay, maybe literally, you, knock, you knock the count down from 50 to like 49 with an asterisk, you know? Yeah, I remember, um, I remember reading in uh, The Big Goodbye uh, that Polanski was like, he was set to basically beat the case. Like he got, mm -hmm. you know, he was set to beat the case. And then he was just, they, he asked if he could get like his sentence suspended, I think, or like pushed back uh, so he could film something out of the country. And the judge granted that. And then he fucked more kids when he was out of the country. Jesus. And then there was like some insane corruption. Um, I think with like either the judge or something like there was some shenanigans going on to the point where, Polanski would have only gotten a slap on the wrist still, and he just booked it and fled the country instead. Just like the ultimate fucking, like, this guy physically cannot stop fucking kids. Yeah. Like, he just, he, he can't, he is the one guy who where sex addiction is real for. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another another overlap with real life would be the Mia Farrow aspect of this with her crumbling relationship with her then husband Frank Sinatra. Uh, Frank Sinatra wanted her to not have a career, basically. Like he when when they got married, Frank Sinatra was forty nine and she was nineteen, which is insane. I knew that there was a big age gap. That's the least pedophilic old Hollywood age gap I think I've ever heard. <laughs> uh. Gene Kelly would be looking at that as like, that's a fucking grandma right there. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just in terms of transitioning into like the new Hollywood from the old system, uh, it, it's very like apropos uh, and symbolic that someone like Sinatra uh, would be with someone like Mia Farrow. But of course, he serves her divorce papers on set. And it's just like, 
I don't know. You could just feel it in the scene where she gets that haircut and Cassavetes is just like, what the fuck, man? Like, that <laughs> sucks. That looks like shit. Uh, and you, you could just feel so much of her pain in that and her reactions. I love how in the 1960s, like, a woman getting a short haircut was like, it's like the men in this, everyone in this movie is way more terrified of her haircut than like any of the Satan stuff. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like all of them are like, you. what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, no, she looks so fucking sweaty and pale for like the first part of the pregnancy. It's like, oh, that haircut is hideous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, she looks like the thin white Duke. She fucking looks like Christian Bale <laughs> uh, uh, the Machinist. And as everyone's like, well, why'd you cut your hair, you dumb bitch? Or whatever. <laughs> Knowing how much of a fucking violent asshole John Cassavetes was, it when I wonder if he was there when Frank Sinatra did that shit because I feel like he would have just killed him if he had done that. <laughs> so it's like, you know, Cassavetes, he kind of gets rewritten by history as like this feminist hero when he was just like, you know, a drunk guy. He was a yeah. genius, but he's also just like an alcoholic. Um, but like the he was a thing, feminist hero because his wife was an actress that was in a lot of movies. Yeah, he's a his. well, he's a he was like you know really fucking loyal to his wife, and yeah. I just like seeing that. I mean, the story that goes around on Twitter is that Roman Polanski literally said that men can't love woman forever, and then uh, Cassavetes responded to him just by bitching him out and saying, "I love my wife more than I did <laughs> twenty fucking years ago," um, and I'm surprised that like he just didn't like have Frank Sinatra killed right there for doing that shit. Uh, so I, I was talking about like on rewatch, trying to see when they flip Cassavetes when this old couple flips them, and there, there's this really great scene where Mia Farrow's just watching Ruth Gordon wash the dishes, and you get a cut. Uh, back to the living room from their point of view and you don't see anyone all you see is like the cigar and cigarette smoke from the couches of the living room rising through the hallway and you just know there's just like I don't know Polanski has a very singular ability to create really evil imagery whether it's in context or out of context that shot is a fully contextual one it's on rewatch you know oh that's the moment that Cassavetes just sold not just his soul but his wife's body uh and uh it on initial watch it's just like a quick cutaway from a conversation to an empty hallway and uh, yeah, I, I just think like between everything that happened in his personal life, obviously, uh, and the subject matter he approaches and just whatever kind of mental disposition he has, uh, I don't really think anyone can conjure like feel bad cinema better than Polanski. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the shot that really sticks with me and like this one you really do have to wonder if he was, like, getting off on this fucking shot because, like, you know, it, it's the one where, and it's the one that always sticks with me, it's when Mia Farrow, like, she realizes Dr. Saperstein, like, the, the quack doctor she has, played mm -hmm. by Ralph Bellamy, is in on it, too. So she runs to a phone booth, and then Polanski, like, locks down the camera when she's in the phone booth and has her, like, calling her other doctor, like, begging for help. And it's, like, this two-minute-long scene. There's no cuts. And what... Polanski does is he just kind of leaves just a little bit of negative space, like, you know, outside of the phone booth range. So, like, every single person that's walking by or near the phone booth becomes, like, a potential threat. It's a really, really effective technique, and it, it like, portrays how she's, like, 
caged like an animal and basically everyone in her world is after against her and it's such a just perverse and sick scene especially knowing the guy that he is but it's so genuinely so unsettling and the, the lead into that is her running across the street to get to that phone booth too and like that one apparently polanski had to be the camera operator on it because no one on the crew wanted to pull that shot off where it's literally like all natural light just on the streets of New York, Larry Cohen style, uh, Polanski essentially chasing Mia Farrow through the street with a camera, uh, with a handheld rig. Uh, just fucking terrifying. <laughs> uh, also, I think my favorite image of this is the lead in to the, uh, you know, demonic, you know, rape sequence. The first cut from Mia Farrow in bed uh, to this dream world you get an image of her on the bed from the perspective of like the head of the bed and this bed is just floating in the water and i don't know it's that that dreamlike imagery of transitioning from one location to another by kind of holding on to one piece of the other location like the bed in this uh example that is just i don't know it's so dreamlike and terrifying because of that there's some very, like, weird and jagged, like, editing things going on in this mm -hmm. movie. Like, the, the way it's cut, a lot of scenes, like, end almost too soon. And I think the second time I saw this, I thought, like, oh, it was just, you know, Polanski was still, like, figuring shit out or whatever. This is still kind of early into his career. But it feels a lot... Third Watch, it feels a ton more intentional. It's very yeah. unsettling. And there's a lot of moments where, you know, you'll cut to Mia Farrow, like she'll be standing in one location and we'll match cut with her in a different location. And all these scenes will just kind of seamlessly blend together. I don't know what the thematic justification for that is, um, but it is really effective. It is really unusual and weird. Yeah, and it seems to be like there, there's a lot of kind of playful match cuts and transitions early in the film, and then it becomes a lot more... I guess symbolically vague, but I kind of like that how the first, it really takes until that sequence uh, for the film to fully switch into the mode that it operates on for the remaining hour, 20 minutes. I like how slowly it settles into that though, because you just get such a good um, grip on, you know, the milieu that you're in and these characters and everything like that. And yeah, the, the style, the visual style doesn't seem as sophisticated as it does in Chinatown or some of his other later films. But I think that that's like the whole point is that it feels spur of the moment and that the camera is just following the action. But of course it's so rigidly planned out. Yes. No, Absolutely. Uh, I love the ending, of course. Uh, one of the most terrifying things ever. Uh, also, I wanted to say about the quack doctor, Dr. Saperstein, like, even regular, you know, straight people use him as a recommendation. Like, they're like, oh, that's like one of those society doctors, you know, uh, which makes it even more horrifying that this guy who has access to babies of the most powerful people is a Satanist also. Yeah. Uh, but so him hanging out there, you know, you got all these weird people hanging out there. You got the Japanese dude with the camera, uh, which I, I always remembered in a weird way. And then I'm glad that I wasn't alone because I was watching Mad Men and uh, they're, they're Rosemary's baby is integrated into the story at one point where uh, Dawn sees uh, Peggy with Ted Shaw at a movie date uh, and they're covering themselves up by saying, Oh, hello. That was quite a film. 
terrifying, wasn't it? Well, we were, um, you know, we're doing the St. Joseph's spot based on it. And Peggy and I had an argument about whether there was a Japanese in the end. You know, when Mia Farrow walks in and sees the baby and the devil worshippers are there. There was. I know. So you've both already seen it. Yeah, but obviously she remembered it better. She wants a Japanese in the ad. They always have a camera. <laughs> yeah, no, the the this movie does have like in the other film that we're going to talk about, too. They both have like this sort of comedic undercurrent in them. It doesn't like take away from the horror, obviously, especially mm -hmm. it's more in the early goings that they let it be funny. But like Cassavetes is riffing like crazy and like the, especially yeah. the first 15 minutes of the movie or something like he's just constantly just talking shit about his neighbors before he becomes a Satanist and. I don't know. There is like a weird, like morbidly funny, like undertone to a lot of the stuff. Even the ending, like I, I'm trying not to view it from like my, you know, 2023 ironic lens. But there there's like a really funny bit in the ending too, unironically, where they have that like sort of frumpy maid for the uh, old woman, the uh, old cast of it. What's her name? Um the old like the old member of. The, oh, the uh, glasses lady who yeah, yeah. takes care of her. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a that frumpy woman, and she's like rocking the the cart. Too oh, rocking hard. it so hard! Yeah, and she's just like shit, trying to fucking kill that baby right there. <laughs> that lady like is hilarious too, because when they're taking Mia Farrow's uh, uh, breast milk for part of the ritual, she was just like, "What do you do with the breast milk?" And this lady just has no fucking clue what to say. Just caught red-handed, she's like, <laughs> uh, "Throw it away." Yeah, but this is just like that little part where she she like. She's rocking the cradle too hard, and then like this, uh, the Castavets tell her like let you know let Rosemary rock the crib. She's so mad she like blows a raspberry at fucking. <laughs> it's, I don't know. There's this very funny like tightrope between this just encroaching nightmare of a woman being systematically stripped of all of her agency, and uh, then there's just these like weird like bits on the side, especially when you've got like Cassavetes on the film who. Apparently wanted to just kind of do whatever, but they wouldn't let him. Well, the the editing feels like it's a good, like, uh, you know, reining in of Cassavetes uh, in the more improv-heavy moments. And he, he really does feel at home, like, at all points of this movie, even if a lot of it must have been Polanski purely trying to contain him. Uh, JT, yeah. any any final thoughts on this one, JT, and a rating? Um, yeah, I'm going to go five bullets. I think it's a masterpiece. Like, uh, I don't know. You can obviously tell like how insanely like influential it is um and just uh, there is in terms of like talking about uh the imitators and like people and films that have come in its vein i feel like one thing about rosemary's baby that like films that follow that are like especially horror that goes in the realm of like uh, usually like a woman as the protagonist who's like paranoid about something, some sort of bodily fear. I feel like there's never really any doubt in Rosemary's baby that like she she's entirely right. I like I feel like weaker versions of this style tend to like go the oh, is it in her head kind of a thing. But there's a very clear sense here that um, I, I don't know. It's just all legit. And I think more like 
more horrifying than being like, is the pain that you're going through real or imagined is the reality that like something is seriously wrong with you and that every person in your life who is supposed to care about you is lying to you and telling you that you're like that, like you it's just made up. And uh, I don't know. So many great images, like classic moments. I feel like Polanski was probably the first to do to play like uh, evil naked old people mm-hmm. as a bit like uh, that. I feel like comes up a lot in the horror genre. And then we have them in that uh, during like the devil rape. You got to get a lot of gross old n- nude bodies there. Um, I don't know, dude. Yeah, you no. sound pretty body negative right now. Ages. I, it's hey, ages. I, I'm you know. looking up this movie on Mr. Skin right now. We're gonna compared to like <laughs> Cassavetti's sexy naked ass in that same scene. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. Different strokes for different folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spencer, what about you? Any final thoughts and a rating out of five here? Uh, it's a really, really great movie. I like it more every time I see it. Um. It's it's got it's got this very weird like novelistic pacing. I wanted to say I'm not saying that it's like a good or bad thing. It's just it's it's very clearly adapted from a novel because of like the very very slow way it gets into go gets into gear, mm-hmm. and then like the way it comes to a climax, and then you can sense that there's like two chapters left after that. Um, again, that's not like a criticism or it's more just an observation, but it's just something that kind of stuck out to me. It's uh, the movie has a very like lopsided very clearly taken from a book pacing to me um i'm gonna give it like four four and a half uh you know i rate on a much harsher scale than most people but this is a really great movie it's a it's a real treat and fucking john cassavetes dude just oh my god he is good in every single fucking movie he's in um yeah i mean hey you don't have to tell me about being a harsh grader i uh i I, i'll lead with that i also give this four and a half and uh, at that it's like one of the 20 probably best films of the 1960s for me uh just you know take care of your curves guys uh (laughs) no i i I just think this is a fantastic movie that does get better every time i think that although i think the masterful style and uh genre trappings and like historical implications of chinatown are a step above uh i think this is like the second best polanski i've seen and uh yeah i mean cassavetti's just with an all-time fucking great performance here uh, it also should be mentioned that the, you know, while it was mainly shot on a soundstage in L.A., uh, the exterior for the uh, the New York apartments uh, was the Dakota. And so there's this strange loop there where the Dakota, of course, is where John Lennon was murdered uh, coming out of his, you know, hotel apartment, whatever. Uh, Charles Manson, of course, was very influenced by the writing of John Lennon and Paul McCartney on songs like Helter Skelter and the White Album, to the point where uh, Helter Skelter was, of course, you know, reinterpreted uh, by Manson or wrongly interpreted as uh, some sort of uh, cue for a worldwide race riot uh, that involved killing a pregnant Sharon Tate for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, I think like all those things coming together. Uh, with the Manson, Sharon Tate, uh, Roman Polanski, 
the car the the Dakota building like it just speaks to the anomaly of evil that this film is there's there's really very few things that can conjure that level of fictional and like metatextual semi-real uh evil than this film and uh that's all I got on that so we will be right back on extended clip right now you fascist I know we could all feel safe like Sharon Tate and we could give it all Extended clip. Oh my god, what are we going to do? The segment is Malcolm in the middle, but our Malcolm. There's no fucking Malcolm. We gotta keep praying for Malcolm. Every time we see one of these Malcolm in the middle segments, we miss him even more. Um, JT, how, how JT in the middle? How's life been treating you? You watch anything good this week? Um, I have been watching a lot, like uh, less than I normally am. I feel like aside from the pod movies, the only thing that I've watched recently is uh, filling in a big gap. I saw Casino at the movie theater yes. uh, for the first time. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I can't. I feel like adding to what has already been said about it is uh, difficult. But yeah. I was really taken aback by Sharon Stone's performance. Oh, I feel yeah. like with De Niro and Pesci there, it's just like. I don't know. She's probably my favorite part of the whole thing and really, I don't know, ties it all together. Um, but I, I like if this stop from a style point of view, it feels like kind of a like mid. I don't want to say midway point, but like it's an in between of the way like uh, Scorsese approaches like storytelling in Goodfellas and then like Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Cause it's just like, there's so many like bits in here that are tied together with narration and montage where like, they're like little, little moments that are like kind of half scenes that really don't like play out all that long, but are just really fun. And just like, I don't know, just such a neat, like exploration of this like dense Vegas world that he builds and just, uh, I don't know. They're also just base level, like, funny. Like, see, like, having uh, De Niro play uh, a Jewish man, Ace Rothstein, <laughs> and uh, have Joe Pesci call him a fucking Jew, like, many times throughout the movie. Very, that, that, like, that, that got a laugh from me many times. Yeah. Um, Ace Rothstein. But, yeah, no, it's, it's great. Uh, yeah, definitely like the most stylistically opulent Scorsese movie. It's insane. Um, Spencer, you see anything good this week? Uh, to be honest, no. Uh, aside from Rosemary's Baby, I've anything bad? <laughs> anything bad? Um, well, I guess I can do. I I've been doing some Scorsese catch up, and look, mm-hmm. Scorsese, he's one of my boys. I, he's one of those directors when you're like 14 years old, you're like, yeah, this guy's he's my man. And then when you're fucking, um, you know, 23 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old, he's still your guy. You know, he's yeah. the man. But 
I've been rewatching some of the ones that I hadn't seen since I was a teenager, and I rewatched the first one I saw uh, when I came out in theaters. Uh, I was just a small child in middle school when it came out, and I rewatched Hugo, and I did not like it. I'm what? Sorry. You yeah. didn't like uh, Scorsese's? Uh, and like basically animated cinema paradiso. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, I I did Eddie. I do not share your your disdain for the Fablemans, but like I got it <laughs> watching this because this is a this is such a fucking just self-aggrandizing movie. Like this is a this is wrong to hold against the movie, but it's it feels like um. It feels like in 2023 when people still tweet like, oh, you think Martin Scorsese's racist? Well, uh, check out the World Cinema Collection or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and just it's like that that is what I just got out of this movie. Uh, that's a, a little harsh. I mean, it looks great, obviously, because it's fucking Scorsese. Uh, it very clearly is trying to be like whimsical. It does kind of look like a DreamWorks movie, but, you know, it's, it's a good looking DreamWorks movie. And um, the score is really good. The score for it is really great. Um, I don't know, but like the entire time I was just like, this is, I should be watching this in like the back of the hottest minivan in the world on like a field trip. <laughs> yeah, it is, a, it is like a children's movie, right? Yes. Yeah, see, that's the thing. There was that period where like the, the hardcore bro auteurists had no choice but to go fully baby mode for a few years between like, uh Tintin and uh Hugo and the BFG and stuff like that like there are so many like otherwise semi-serious film critics who are just like really putting in the hours on baby movies from an auteurist perspective I guess yourself included but there there was a time in history where that was like the thing like Oh, in terms of new releases, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the new Baby movie by uh, five of my favorite directors. Yeah, like Tintin and Hugo coming out at the same time. There was like the the early Obama administration was like a it was like a vision from another world. It was a it's a Prince of Darkness fucking. It was like a, I have a feeling that like if the Children of Men future ever happens, where like babies just stop being born, I think every single movie is just going to be this. Like every yeah. single movie by all of our directors are just going to be like Hugo and Tintin. That would be awesome. Uh, that would be. I mean, I say awesome because all you said was the Children of Men thing was real, and I was like, bro, I'm Michael Caine in that movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Michael Caine, epic in that movie. I gotta say, yeah. <laughs> uh, that that's one that like anytime I say I don't really like Children of Men. Uh, like 95% of people would be like, but dude, Michael Caine, the strawberry cough, you got a cough, man. That's such a uh, funny like, thing th to <laughs> single out since I love Children of Men, but that's like, yeah. <laughs> if I had to like point like 30 reasons why I like that movie, I would literally put the fact that they have a King Crimson song in it over the fucking Michael yeah. Caine. They're like, oh, I might. You pull my finger, cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. It's like objectively funny to cast Michael Caine as like a stoner hippie, yeah, just like as Willie Nelson. That's like <laughs> just awesome casting all around. But <laughs> yeah, uh, I I've been doing some watching this week. Uh, just yesterday, I watched a very uh, overlooked uh, Eric Romare film, The Tree, The Mayor, and the Media Tech. This is a like underseen 1993 Romare film 
Uh, it's really like a political procedural drama almost. It's so out of left field coming from Romare. But once you start watching it, like after a while, it just kind of fits into the glove uh, or fits like a glove into his filmography. Uh, especially if you've seen some of his like nonfiction short films, which are often about like ecology or agriculture or politics. Uh, and um, also his politics are very, you know, rightist. He was a, he was like a royalist. He was super trad, you know. And so him doing this movie about like a socialist mayor who wants to build a cool media tech uh, and the opposition coming from like conservationalists is very funny because if you know anything about Eric Romare's penchant for composition, it's like, yeah, the ecologists are going to have a really good point. Like uh, it's it's gonna look re- like the nature is gonna look really good, uh. So you know, Romare getting in on the the NIMBY action before it was hip, I guess. Uh, but it's a it's a really great unexpected film, uh, that applies his usual penchant for both composition, patience for editing through a scene, uh, dialogue, of course, casting, and getting these really interior performances out of his leads. Uh, it into a more like traditionally uh satisfying plot and i uh, i recommend it to everybody we'll be right back on extended clip could that be one person no claire that's the mormon tabernacle choir doing their annual obscene phone call Go find a wall socket and stick your tongue in it. That'll give you a charge. I'll stick my tongue up your pretty pussy. Uncle Leo? <laughs> and we're back on extended clip. The second movie of the double feature is Black Christmas. But if you were an American at the time uh, when it came out in theaters, you were talking about Silent Night, Evil Night. Uh, and if you were an American watching it on television uh, in the late 70s, but probably mainly in the early 80s, you may have seen it under the title Stranger in the House. But it has uh, reverted black, uh, back to its original <laughs> title, Black Christmas. But speaking of... You gotta put a little shaft back. sting in there when you said that. Well, speaking of that, we should start with that because the reason that Warner Brothers wanted to change the name, you know, this is a uh, like semi-independent Canadian film made for half a million dollars that Warner's picked up for distribution. They retitled it because they didn't want people to think it was a black exploitation movie. <laughs> like they were like, oh no, people are gonna come to this thinking they're gonna get Mister T as Santa or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> Um, I will say I get why critics hated this movie when it came out because mm-hmm. like 
Black Christmas, that's a good horror movie title. Honestly, yeah. that's a good horror movie title. It's solid, you know, it's, it's creepy, it's effective. Silent Night, Evil Night. If I was, like, working for the New York <laughs> Times in fucking 1974, and my editor was like, hey, you've got to go review Silent Night, Evil Night, I would be like, fuck you. K- kill yourself. Like, I'm not doing... <laughs> no. <laughs> Which would explain the critical reception to the Silent Night, Deadly Night franchise. Uh, yes. All of them being reviled, basically. But uh, I would say three of them being kind of, like, cult favorites for, you know... Uh, a certain crowd. I think Monty Hellman directed like the fourth one or some shit like that. Very strange. Like, Garbage um, Day was like the funniest thing in the world to me when I was 13 years old. That's in the second one, right? Yeah, that's in the uh, second one. First one is fucking awesome. I, I love it. I think the the Santa kill in the first one in front of all of the horrified, traumatized children watching Santa get mowed down by a cop. Like, I think that's exploitation magic. But Black Christmas is the film we're here to talk about, which is paired every year with Silent Night, Deadly Night at the New Beverly in a double feature. Uh, That is the first place I saw this on a 35 millimeter print. And uh, quite fun, quite fun. I think when you're telling the story of horror, I think this is obviously a key chapter uh, between the proto slashers like Peeping Tom and Psycho. And the heavy-duty slashers like Halloween and all the 80s sequelized movies that would come after that. Forget when I watched it like a few years ago for the first time, but I don't like this time around. I, 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 I mean, I didn't dislike it the first time, but it stuck with me a lot more. And I just feel like they're just like bare bones, like essential like formal style stuff of this that like I don't know establish it as that sort of like way like sort of midpoint in the development of the slasher that you're talking about and just like on like a craft level there are so many points here they're just so like creepy and unnerving like I like the camera movement throughout the girls early on when we hear like uh the the phone call where he's talking about like uh like licking cunts and things like that and just like i don't know obviously like saying it out loud and like even in the scene itself it is like a little goofy but just the way that like sort of goes out and then i think there's one shot that sort of like pans through like all the like 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 just sort of shocked expressions to it and uh yeah uh, the I what I was gonna say was, <laughs> I saw this at the New Beverly too, and uh, oh. I I love that the that the trailers they pull for it play before it are all evil phone related movies. So at yeah. first they play like <laughs> when a stranger calls, and gotta say when a stranger calls, not a good movie. First twenty minutes of that fucking crazy good shit. Um, but okay. starts with when a stranger calls, and then it just gets like more and more off the rails until they're playing like evil phone or whatever (laughs) (laughs) but uh black christmas i mean i'm glad you mentioned the craft because uh this isn't as like showy or you know obviously brilliant as like halloween is for example or it's not as like you know as opulent as like the peeping tom and it doesn't have like hitchcock's just you know total command of the cinematic space but what it does have is what it has is just this 
I mean, for one, the geography of the house, like that's such a weird thing to single out, but to make a horror movie be effectively claustrophobic, you really need to have like a perfect command of how to manipulate space and how to use it. That's something I've always found really brilliant about Carpenter's Halloween is he establishes oh, yeah. this, uh, you know, voyeur's POV at the beginning. So any fucking shot can introduce a potential threat. And that's what Black Bob Clark does here too. The very first shot is Billy climbing the walls of the house. And then you come to realize through that, that basically any vantage point, any point that the camera's looking at basically could represent, could be, you know, Billy's POV, or it could be just a potential threat. He could pop out of nowhere in the background. Um, and also just the command of atmosphere here. Like, I cannot believe this is the fucking guy that did, like, a Christmas story, Baby Geniuses, Porky's. It's insane because, like, just this is as atmospheric and horrifying as, like, any of the great... 1940s you know like horror movies like i walked with a zombie or whatever there's just like this total creeping dread and there's just this brutality lurking on the surface like i i am just in awe of like the level of craft put into this movie and how well it modulates all of its tones and different plots and how well it ratchets up dread going forward it's again it's like the greatest fluke in movie history for me yeah, I mean, I wouldn't quite put it on the level of I Walked With a Zombie, but in comparison to the other Bob Clark movie we've talked about on the podcast, uh, Super Babies 2, Baby Geniuses, this is like, <laughs> you know, Ophel's Dryer, Brisson. Yeah. Like, you, you, you know, wa- this you is like... Baby Geniuses too. So, Kahuna, that Super Baby, he was like a secret Nazi, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, it was really strange. It was... Yeah, he's a secret Nazi. Okay, good. <laughs> we, we we had a theory when we watched it for good old fashioned values that he was like uh he was a secret like Nazi scientist since I say I think he said he's from Argentina at some point. <laughs> There's weirdly a lot of jokes about that back then and like now you don't want it they don't joke about it as much. Like now those jokes about South American ex Nazis are all like on Twitter. But, like, in the 90s and 2000s, you would get them in, like, mainstream comedies and stuff like that. Yeah, no. Now they're just uh, all guys called, like, like uh, Fran and Joyer. And- yeah. <laughs> it's it's just, like, guys who will make fun of me if I tell them that my dad's Chilean. So yeah. I don't, you know. Yo soy un groiper. Yeah, exactly. Yo necesito un helicopter ride. Uh, I will say, however, there is a bit of relation in the Bob Clark style from this to something like Porky's in terms of like the crass humor, you know, Uh, I think there's like a sensibility crossover, but it's like this is him at his most respectable almost and Porky's is him at his most vulgar. Uh, But, you know, when um, what's her name is doing when Margot Kidder's doing the fellatio phone number thing and uh, saying that you can't rape a townie and stuff like that Uh, which is I mean hey look townies in the 70s I don't know what was going on there where she said that (laughs) yeah okay Mario Kidder in this movie is genuinely really fucking funny like that's part of my why I really like this movie is that it's genuinely makes me like laugh still especially she's like like she's like the exploitation 70s version of uh What's her name? Ann Savage and Detour. Yes. Yeah. Uh, very no. just like aggressive and funny and like 
the the fellatio bit is so good because as she's saying it, like you can just see like the gears turn in her head's like, yeah. I'm gonna get away with this. Like I'm actually going to actually gonna get away with this. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Anne Savage and Detour, and because uh, those are two women who I would kill myself if I could have sex with in hell. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Um, but, no, so Mario I, Kidder, just one of my favorite performances in any horror movie. She's just very commanding, very funny. You know, she kind of like cuts through all the tension that's going on in the early scenes. There's a great little mm -hmm. split diopter shot where she's feeding alcohol to a five-year-old. Just so good. And when basically as soon as she gets sidelined, when she has like her drunken meltdown and then gets put to bed, that's when the movie like goes from, oh, this is like a fun horror movie that you can watch with your friends to like, Jesus Christ, man, what the hell is happening in this? <laughs> because like after that, then like, like a nine-year-old girl is found like raped in a parking lot, and then um, Billy like starts killing everyone, and like the stakes of the film and the panic really increase. And then Peter, her shitty boyfriend, just gets more and more violent and insane, and it all builds to that ending, which, I mean, for my money, that's like the single scariest ending in movie history when. You know, the like they think it's done. They solve the mystery, and then the phone starts ringing again, and you don't get a scream. You don't get any resolution. You just get that fucking, just endless ringing as the credits roll. It's just so goddamn unsettling. Yeah, and it's an exact mirror of the opening credits too. It's that same, or if not same, very similar angle of the house, uh, with you know Billy creeping around uh, yeah. for opening credits and closing credits and. It, it does make it much more haunting thinking about it like that. I will say I don't find myself to be as affected by the drama of the movie. Uh, like, I understand why it's effective, though. Uh, you know, the, there's the, the key relationship here is between Peter and what, what's the other character's name there? Uh, uh, Jess. Jess. Yeah, Peter and Jess have a relationship problem where... You know, Jess is pregnant, Peter doesn't want her to get an abortion, and, you know, he gets really aggro about it, and then because of that becomes the main murder suspect, and I think as far as, like, horror procedure goes, that's A-plus stuff. Like, that's just, like, you're weaving one plot into the other perfectly. I just personally don't love watching those dramatic scenes together. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the accent of, uh, is it, like, Olivia Hussey or something like that? Yeah, Olivia uh, Hussey. I, yeah, I don't. She's, she's, I mean, I get that she is British, uh, but like, there, there's something about like those performances that I just it can't quite get over the hump for me. Uh, the way the Margot Kidder and the cop stuff does. I uh, the cop stuff's great because the yeah. cops are all inept except for the one cop played by John Saxon who like kind of mm -hmm. has his shit together. And then there's that moment where they realize the call's coming from inside of the house. That's one of the best like implicit horror scenes in movies for me when she just like realized like when he realizes wait calls it oh fuck and then they just start speeding forward it's so good Cardalia um I'll stick up for him a little bit in this movie you know mm -hmm. he's not a good actor uh but like with Stanley Kubrick his or even with uh, Otto Preminger really like his very uh like flat just alien like this guy seems like a fucking you know stick uh, his flat affect is used very well since he's like a creepy, unnerving, manipulative boyfriend. And whereas like with John Cassavetes and Rosemary's Baby, he plays the role by being very, 
you know, just uh, casual and brushing off here. Like, this is a guy who just seems like he came beamed in from another planet. And mm. it makes it all the more unsettling by the very end when he's not actually the killer. He's just a fucking asshole. <laughs> um, I think that... It also has uh, kind of logical steps over a lot of the slashers that would come uh, after because like when you watch this and the first time a body is discovered, the cops are officially alerted right away. And Despite the fact that the cops are inept, it's like, oh, we're working on a much more logical scale than all the movies mm -hmm. that uh, this yeah. influence. They still... Uh, <laughs> they still make the absolutely brilliant play at the end. It's like, all right, well, we're not... Don't don't think that attic needs to be checked out at all. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's like it's one of those things you have to let go because like, um, I guess they could have just closed the attic door or something. And they do have a line saying like no one goes in the attic or whatever. So I don't know, <laughs> but uh, it is it is very funny. Like in order for this movie to work, it's very Hitchcockian how all the fucking cops just have to be fucking bumbling assholes. And <laughs> it does lead to a lot of great scenes, especially that great shot when they get back and that one cop just has his fucking neck slit open. <laughs> yeah, no, the cops in this are some real, you know, Chief Wiggum, bake em away toys level yeah, horror no. movie <laughs> cops. But, like, that's fine. You know, you need that for uh, the, the killings to go on. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I really like this movie. I, I think it doesn't quite get there for me as far as like just enjoying it versus appreciating it historically, uh, for it to be like great, great. But I think it's like one of the better horror movies of the seventies, especially like in this period before the slasher wave comes up, uh, in the late seventies, like when we're still in early seventies, American horror, you're looking at some real like tough sits you know so this is like easily one of the better movies of that era of american horror uh and i gotta think bob clark man when he figured out that it's called it, the calls coming from inside the house like when he dramatically figured that out he must have just taken a victory lap right like he knew everyone was going to copy that he knew he struck gold like, there it's like oh calls coming from inside the house we just beat horror like we yeah it's it one out. of those things it's one of those things where like yeah, it was taken. It, it's a very weird structure because I think that whole idea was taken from like a popular uh, urban legend at the time. Yeah. Um, but this one, the reason why it's so perverse because you know the calls are coming from inside the house the entire time. Yeah, you but, figure it out within two minutes when you get yeah. that POV shot creeping into the house. Yeah. Yeah, no. And like, whereas with when a stranger calls, they actually keep that hidden for the entire 20 minutes. And. Mm -hmm. It's a testament that this is just as effective, like you know it, but still like hearing the words spoken and seeing the realization on Jess's face is so fucking good. Uh, you also have Black Sabbath is horror triptych by Bava, where the first one is literally just like the opening of Scream, which you would think comes directly from this. Uh, it's just like a 20 minute horror phone call sequence. And uh, I, I just wanted to shout out a classic Bava uh, you know, foundational horror thing that sets this up in a way to be the first real American slasher. Uh, yeah. Three and a half for me. JT, what about you? Yeah, I'm going uh, four bullets. I think it's like, yeah, it's really effective for me. Again, just on like a very basic level. And I feel like the simplicity of it is, uh, I don't know, part of what I want in a horror film. Like, I, I don't know, easy enough setup, 
easy in, but like the kills are really like gruesome and just like even without that, like I feel like the scenes of like uh, drama with like Peter and Jess are like minimal enough. And I also feel like with this, like lumping this, I mean, I don't think it's nearly as effective of uh, as Rosemary's baby in terms of painting like a world where every man is out to get them. But I think like Peter as like sort of the obvious, like false, like uh, uh false perpetrator is like an interesting enough angle there. And uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of the gruesome kills, like I love uh, the way uh, when the, she's, like Barb is being killed with the glass unicorn as she, and that's kind of being drowned out by the Christmas carolers. Like the cutting between that is just, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. What I want from a horror movie. This is an easy five bagger for me. Um, All time favorite. Just like everything I kind of want out of a horror movie. You've got these really well sketched and thought out characters and you've got really tight and creepy filmmaking. You've got this escalating brutality um and god i just i watch it every single fucking christmas and i never get tired of it i also wanted to shout out how the kills are like very brutal and simple through most of the movie like you've got plastic bag on the face or hook to the neck or whatever and then all of a sudden like in the middle of it you've got this beautiful scene where it intercuts like the children singing with this like dario argento fucking kill in the middle of it yeah, the Mario, the Margot Cater kill, like, there's so many insert shots of, like, blood on body parts with, like, a black curtain, essentially, behind it, uh, and, like, very artistic lighting, very expressive lighting, and it really comes out of nowhere, but I love it. Also, very, yeah, clearly inspired by the Italian horror of the time and a little yeah. before his time, yeah. I if Bob Clark, he could have been, like, a really, really just fucking phenomenal horror movie auteur since, like, he's a fucking pervert lech and he's got a good sense of how to be unsettling and i would have watched 25 fucking sex comedies of his if they all involved like a evil killer just going around brutalizing people yeah um so that's gonna do it on our double feature for this week thank you so much to spencer for coming on the pod uh spencer you are a man of podcasts oh yeah plug it up for the people where are they gonna listen to you Okay, so there is Get Cynical. I do this podcast with Esther Rosenfield, and uh, we talk about uh, internet bullshit. Uh, we did our first season on Doug Walker, the Nostalgic Critic. We did our third season recently on Max Landis and his filmography, and we've Ooh. got a new one cooking, and um, I'll just spoil it right here. It's going to be on the rise and fall of crack.com. So I'm really looking oh, forward cracked. to it. Oh, com. Wow. Yeah. That, oh, that's going to yeah. be a wild one. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, we, like, interviewed a few people who worked for the site, uh, and it's, it's going to be a good time. Um, but I also have a show, Those Good Old Fashioned Values. Uh, it is a comedy, movie review, all around. It's a very jack-of-all-trades podcast, and it's me and two of my friends just uh, messing around, doing whatever we feel like. We recently had an episode where we made a fra uh, a fake true crime podcast. Uh, another one, we had a fake dating show podcast. Uh, you know, it's it's very just riff 
riffy, but we also review movies sometimes. We recently reviewed uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and mostly talked about how unsettling John Goodman looks now because he's thin. Um, so <laughs> that yeah, is but- a very unsettling. Like, of all of the fat guys who got thin, you know, Jonah Hill, you just kind of get used to it. That's a weird one. Yeah, like, John no, Goodman I, did it old too. It's yeah, weird. Yeah. He he looks like he could jump from a plane and be fine. Like it, it's <laughs> it's very, ugh, yeah. But no, please go check those out. Uh, they're a lot of fun. And and if uh, I I mean also let's be clear here that started as a Family Guy podcast. Oh correct? yes, yes. Because there did. are it's, a there are a lot of Family Guy heads in the extended clip list. There yes, it started out as a Family Guy podcast. We um, I do not recommend listening to our Family Guy <laughs> episodes uh, because that was three years ago before we knew what we were doing. But yes, it started out as a Family Guy podcast, hence the title. And we still talk about Family Guy a lot. We did an episode with the uh, Closer Look Boys where we did a writer's room for a theoretical Family Guy movie. So, oh, that's oh, great. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. That's, everyone needs to listen to that, including myself. Um, yeah. Spencer, before we let you go, since you brought up Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I had to pull up a, a quote, for a passage that I read the other day that is going to stick with me forever. And this will be the end of the segment. Uh, this is from a book. Uh, that was published last year. It's called uh, The Philosophy of the Modern Song. It's written by one Robert Zimmerman, also known as Bob Dylan. <laughs> there is a big difference in the types of women that you see from the stage when you are with the stones compared to the dead. With the stones, it's like being at a porno convention. With the dead, it's more like the women you see by the river in the movie Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Free-floating, <laughs> snaky, and slithering like in a typical daydream. Thousands of them. <laughs> Spencer, thank you. We'll talk All to right. you soon, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye. We have, we have emails, extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. This first one, I think I missed it twice. I feel like this one was a month ago. Um, it's from a guy named Callum, or a person named Callum. Hi, guys. I very much enjoy your podcast, and I have a few questions I'd like to ask you. This one is for everyone, but particularly JT, as he seems the most versed in Indian cinema of all of you guys. I haven't heard you mention the work of Satchit Ray in any of the episodes I've listened to and was wondering, have you seen any of his films? And if so, what's your impression of his work? JT, that, that's right at you. What's up, dude? Satchit um, Ray, how do you feel? I haven't watched any of his movies in uh in total i watched one there's like a short uh like not short film because i think it's like technically like 50 minutes or uh like an hour um on criterion channel a while back um by fell asleep before i uh could finish it so i don't i i'm not gonna base anything uh, off of that, I don't know. He's a guy, definitely like a dude. I'm curious about checking out at some point. All of the Indian cinema heads, basically just Indian friends of mine, uh, say that he is uh, good. But I don't know. This style of uh, movie that he's doing is one that, like, I don't know. I don't want to say I'm not interested in checking out, but at the moment, I feel like. 
Um, if there's just um, other Indian cinema avenues. For yeah, you. there's other Indian cinema avenues for me because he's not like I don't know. Ray seems to not be as like he's like a middle point between like obviously like Bollywood like extravagance and things like that and he like because he's not that at all um but he's less of like an art film guy too yeah like uh, he's just i don't know making like uh, again dramatic films i don't want to say like standard dramas because i feel like that's like too flippant or like underwriting what he's doing just yeah no just haven't got there yet probably will at some point i feel like uh, I don't know. Just the hesitation has been because it's like Indian Cinema 101. Like every, he's the Indian uh film. I mean, not like I have avoided other films in that realm, but he's the big Indian director. So in the West, so I wanted to, I don't know, save that for after I've seen some other stuff first. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, I never watched his stuff when I was first getting into like the criterion uh back in the hulu criterion days like you know it was like satchajit ray alongside fellini and bergman and antignoni all those filmmakers were kind of presented together and ray was right there i just uh never checked him out and you know i he's on the list next part of the email says uh eddie i heard you allude in one episode to your not being too fond of godard's the image book could you expand more on why you are less fond of it than Godard's other 2010s films, or even Histoire du Cinema. Well, Histoire du Cinema stands alone as a towering work that kind of defines his entire project outside of, you know, the fictional filmmaking, uh, the more genre-based stuff he's accomplished. Um, While the image book almost seems like an addendum to it. Uh, And... For some people, it's a very worthwhile addendum. I thought it was good, just not great. Like, if if I had never uh, had the context of it being Godard, if I just, like, thought it was some new filmmaker presenting an essay film, I would probably be more impressed. Uh, but the fact that Godard had accomplished Goodbye to Language, you know, four years before that or whatever, it, it wasn't the most impressive thing, I guess. Uh, it's just not one of my favorite of Godard's essay films. Uh, I think it kind of, like most of his stuff, I would say, begs more questions than it answers, but I feel like that one especially does. Back to the email. Finally, a question for everyone. If you hypothetically, of course, were trapped on a desert island and could only have access to the filmographies of three directors, who would those directors be? Wow. Classic desert island discs scenario. JT... (laughs) I, I truly hope you're never stranded on an island. You're I, my friend, and I don't want that to happen to you. But what would you say? But, yeah, no. On the desert island hard drive, I feel like it's easy. Like, you already kind of know what, like, I feel like any of us on this podcast would say. But I would say Godard and Ford are, like, locks. Because, yeah. like, not only just, like, two... Like, okay, well, um, how about this? Since we would both probably have Godard and Ford, why don't we do it like a draft? Why don't like one of us gets Godard and the other gets Ford? Okay. Uh, right. <laughs> Which one? Would, oh, we both want Ford more, don't we? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say that. Okay, but you, you, go, you had the draft idea first, so you get Ford. Okay, uh, and I'll you can Godard. have the next pick after too. So you get Godard for your pick. 
and then your next pick too. Who's your second pick? Um, I'm gonna go Clint. Oh, that's a great one because it's you got like 50 plus years of movies there. Exactly. You got all the different periods: the prestige period, the more exploitation stuff. Oh man, that's a great pick. I, ooh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a similar pick, uh, for the sake of it being, you know. An American director from post-studio era, since I already have Ford for the studio era, uh, ranging the next 50 years, I would say Brian the Palma. Oh, that's a good, that is a good pick as well. Yeah. I like, I mean, also thinking in terms of the desert island scenario, Yeah. like you're not going to want to watch dour stuff. Like you're not going to like, it's not art house mode necessarily. I mean, even though I did pick Godard first. He he's playful, but it's not like I yeah. don't know. I'm not. I, I don't know if Antonioni would hit as hard on the island. If I was on an island and I didn't know when help was going to come, but I had food and a TV and like Antonioni movies, I'd probably not last very long. Like I, <laughs> I love Antonioni. He's a top five director for me, but he's not a top five desert. I if we're taking the premise literally, he's not a top five desert island director. Uh. And that's why my last pick would probably be something like, I don't know. I mean, oh, you have another pick. Who's your who's your third guy? If you have Clint and you have Godard so far, who's rounding out your your three? Um, rounding out my three, I guess I'm gonna go Ozu. Again, Ooh. it's a like big film I like he's he's a sad guy, and I mean there's plenty of time to cry on that island. But again, it's another thing of big filmographies. You're going to miss your family so much watching those Ozu movies. <laughs> oh, I'm on the island and I don't have my Japanese family. <laughs> uh, my my third pick, I don't know. See, that's the thing. Like, I, I want to say, you know, my instinct always leads me to someone more art house because of just, like, who has the best filmography. But for the sake of, like, entertainment value, I might go, like, Choi Hark there. Oh, uh, damn. I that's really have, like, good. A, yeah, I want to have like an action director, but I think Choi Hark is going to get me the most variance there in like the types of movies. Uh, and yeah, that would like either Choi Hark or Johnny Toe, uh, either of those, like you just have such a dense filmography. But with Choi Hark, I think you have a little more variance, even even though Johnny Toe, you have like, actually, I don't know. You get all the rom-coms. With I, Johnny I would go Johnny Fuck. Toe. Johnny Toe yeah. is huge. Oh, man. Yeah, I would actually I would probably go Johnny Toe for my third. Thank you for uh, the uh, the prompt, Mr. Callum. Um, next email comes from someone named Kevin, and it says, Brothers, name one good thing and one bad thing. Amen. That's like a bad haiku. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, okay, good one thing. good thing, pussy, bad thing, money. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> now, I'm not going to go as far as invert you there for my good bad thing. That would be the easy thing, but that would be yeah. treacherous to my own conscience and my yeah. uh, my conscience and my belief system. Uh, a, a good thing uh, is that I am going to be moving to the other side of the country to be with one of my other podcast co-hosts, JT, in the beautiful city of Philadelphia later this year. One bad thing is Malcolm's going to be away from the other two of us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is a real like uh, I don't know kind of. We're gonna we're gonna get his ass over here. We'll, exactly, we'll get, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. 
Uh, I, I'm a little confused on the ordering of the episodes because we had some plans fall through and the, the Malcolm, the, the Malcolm of it all, uh, if you will. Uh, so I, I can't really say what's coming out next, but whatever you heard last was a good episode and whatever you hear next will be a good episode. <laughs> <laughs> thing to do now is move. Guy? Yeah. I'm going to Dr. Hill Monday morning. Dr. Saperstein is either lying or he's, I don't know, out of his mind. Pain like this is a warning something is wrong. And I'm not drinking Minnie's drink anymore. I want vitamins in pills like everyone else. I, I haven't drunk it for the last three days. I've thrown it away. What? I've made my own drink. Is that what those bitches were giving you in there? Is that their hint for today? They're my friends. Don't They're a bunch of bitches. not very bright bitches who ought to mind their own goddamn bitch. All they said was get a second opinion. Rosemary, you got the best doctor in New York. You know who Dr. Hill is? He's a Charlie nobody. That's who he is. <laughs>